0: It's certainly been a bad 15 days, but it could have been worse.
1: Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. In today's special episode, Joseph Miket talks with Kyle Danish and John Larson about the news that Senator Joe Manchin rejected the proposed energy and climate investments that were part of the budget reconciliation package. They also talk about the recent Supreme Court decision limiting the EPA's ability to regulate carbon emissions at existing power plants. Kyle is a partner in the Washington office of Van S. Feldman and John is a director at the Rhodium Group leading their US power sector work. Both are non-resident affiliates with our team here at CSIS. Kyle, John and Joseph provide some much needed context around these two major developments and what it may mean going forward for Biden's climate agenda. Here's Joseph to lead the discussion.
0: John and Kyle, I'm really glad that you're joining us today. Last night, it was reported that Senator Manchin won't be supporting the climate and clean energy provisions of the budget bill. That happened just 15 days after the Supreme Court ruled to limit or constrain the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases. So the big question we have at the moment for me is, is this the worst 15 days for the Biden climate agenda and where do we go from here? I've got lots of questions for the both of you on on both those matters, but I'd, I'd love to hear just initial
2: reactions to the news of the last two weeks, maybe starting with John. Thanks, Joseph, it's great to be back on. Certainly not a high watermark when it comes to climate action for the Biden administration. You know, I think on the Supreme Court piece, kind of we always expected some sort of constraint. My take has always been, well, now we know, how 111d or power plants should be used, which was one of the the question before the court, Uh or at least I think we know, but you know Kyle may have some thoughts on how much we really know out of that. But like, you know, and therefore EPA at least kind of has knows what it can't do and can focus on action now because I'll just know we're you know year and a half into the administration, there's still no draft rule on that front, so it's important to get that rolling. But the uh, news about Senator Manchin is obviously really important because all of the actions considered by Congress had nothing to do with Clean Air Act or any kind of regulatory authority with the Biden administration. So they were kind of a whole other pathway for emission reductions and clean energy deployment in America. And one that would start sooner and potentially last longer than any one regulatory action. So, you know, the, the fact that that is now off the table is going to make it much more challenging for the administration to meet its climate targets. We don't think it's completely off the table yet. The 2030 target will just get advanced in, ahead of that question. But it makes all the other actions that need to happen 10 times more important. They're also a little bit more harder to do because some of the benefits of those clean energy investments and tax credits would have made it easier, or at least greased um, the skid, so to speak, on some of the regulatory actions. And so that additional kind of board is now gone. And that's going to that's gonna make all these actions more important, but also harder to achieve. Well, I, I, I want to dig into the details of that uh, with you in a moment, but
0: I'm, let's give Kyle a moment to offer any opening thoughts. Yes, well, it's, it's good to be with you both. I would say in answer to your question, Joseph, it's certainly been a bad 15 days, but it could have been worse. Obviously, we have to take Chairman Manchin's uh, word that he's not completely walked away from this package, but it's going to wait to see the inflation numbers in August. And, you know, this leaves dwindling time in the congressional hourglass to still do some sort of bill that potentially has these provisions so i I guess we have to take him at his word that that he's not walked away from the table and then on the the supreme court decision that that is really an area where it it could have been worse i mean there were real concerns i think within the biden administration and among environmental advocates uh, and industry advocates as well that the Supreme Court was poised to take away greenhouse gas regulatory authorities altogether uh, under the Clean Air Act, which would have sort of stopped the effort altogether. And that, that didn't happen. So in fact, those regulatory authorities remain there. There there's great uncertainty around them and we can talk more about that, but EPA is still in a position to promulgate regulation, you know, emission limits for power plants, emission limits for new motor vehicles, methane limits for the oil and gas sector. And the, you know, the federal government is still in a position to exercise its procurement power to buy clean energy or low carbon goods. So there, there are still tools that can be wielded here. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, the sort of nuance. So, you know, we're we're all reacting to yesterday's news. Today's Friday, the, the July 15th. And sort of clarifying comments this morning from Senator Manchin that he is waiting to see the next round of inflation numbers before he commits to voting one way or another. It's a bit reminiscent of that famous line from the film, The Princess Bride, right? Mostly dead is not dead dead. And we can talk a little bit about inflation with John later as it relates to the sort of clean energy tax credits, but I don't know that anybody expects there to be a, a huge difference next month compared to this month. And so it's not clear to me what what might change that would that would alter his opinion, but we'll, we should talk about it. We're in a fortunate place, though, that we've all published a lot on these issues over the last couple of weeks. And, and remarkably, John, I don't know if you you Rhodium group has just the, the best sense of timing or got very fortunate. But yesterday you released the, the taking stock report for 2022, which gives rhodium's view on what current policy, which now looks like the policy we're going to have for the, for the time being, means for greenhouse gas emissions. For our listeners, can you just give us the top line on, on that report? And, and you know, I was surprised by the numbers that came out. Why do you see emissions falling perhaps more than you thought they would have a year ago?
2: Sure. Thanks, Joseph. And, yeah, we just put out Taking Stock 2022, a report we put out pretty much every year to understand where U.S. emissions are going based on all policies on the books as of the June prior to release. So everything that's happened, including the infrastructure package and state, policy action over the last year, all that steps in baked into our projections through last month. The other big thing that we did that, say, sets this projection apart from EIA's recent annual energy outlook is this is, I think, the first full comprehensive US energy system projections that fully account for elevated fossil fuel prices from the Ukraine war. And then we also incorporate updated views on macroeconomic. Growth going forward because they have, uh, you know, recent news around inflation and then, you know, higher interest rates. Everything's uh, looking like it will move a little slower in the medium to long term than maybe even just six months ago. People were thinking coming out of uh, the COVID rebound. And when you roll all of that up together, we've actually found that, that current policy emissions trends are going to be lower than we've ever seen them before uh, with a high. So we do a range every year that captures the uncertainty around fossil fuel prices, around clean technology costs, and a few other factors. And on the, on the high end, we see emissions declining to 24% below 2005 levels. And then on the low end, 35% below, below 2005 levels. And just for, for folks taking store at home, prior last year, we, we found the very lowest number possible was 30, probably more like 26 on the low end, right? So now we're saying as low as 35, our central case, which kind of has high fuel prices now, but lower later and middle of the road tech costs is 30% around, below 2005 by 2030. So that is good news in the sense that the U.S. is uh, in better shape than we thought on reducing emissions. And in fact, even in our highest end of the range, emissions are still lower than today. So emissions are declining. The trend is good. Clean energy is getting deployed. People are getting energy systems getting more efficient, all those things. It's still nowhere near fast enough to meet President Biden's commitments, uh, nor is it anywhere fast enough to actually be in line with, say, what the IPCC says a major economy should be doing on climate change, right? So good news is things are a little better than we thought, but not because of amazing policy action, because trends are just happened to be going in a certain direction. So any any new action, including the congressional action that is now no longer on the table, would have gotten further than that. That's another important thing to say as we start to talk about potential new things that might happen here. So that's kind of where we are today, vis-a-vis all these additional external events that have uh, occurred over the last couple of weeks.
0: I know one of the most frustrating things for a modeler is a moving target. And the negotiations that led up to the collapse, whether or not they get restored is a question, I suppose, might have been hard to track. But Give us a sense of scale. What gets left on the table if you don't have this package of clean energy tax credits that Democrats have been forwarding?
2: Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I, I don't think folks have heard enough about the like, relative significance of the package. You know, Congress has never sent tax credits out for a 10-year extension ever, um, with the exception of their inception, right? So like when the PTC was first put on the books, it was a 10-year policy. For example, right? But that's the last time Congress said we will have a tax credit going forward for a full decade on anything, right? So this that just that alone is huge. You know, usually when people talk about tax extenders in like a year end budget deal or something like that, it's one year, maybe two year extension. We're talking 10 at a minimum. And not only that, but you know, it's worth noting the wind and solar tax credits were about to, they're about to phase out like now, like in this year or next, right? So um, and they were already not at their initial full value. They had declined a bit, right? So this would have brought everything back up to the full value for a full 10 years. Underappreciated aspect was credit flexibility is what we call it, meaning any technology could take any credit, PTC or ITC. And we actually found early on that that flexibility is surprisingly important for technologies like solar, where if you have just the investment tax credit available, which the value of the credit is based on the cost of the project and you have a technology like solar that is continuing to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, the absolute value of that credit is shrinking over time, which means its deployment value gets smaller the further out in time you go. The tax credit package would have allowed the solar developers or the wind developers, whatever way it works better, could take whichever credit's better for them. So all of a sudden, if solar could take the production tax credit, we found that would actually accelerate deployment even further because you have a fixed value to the credit instead of a shrinking one, right? There are other aspects of this that are important. Uh, we have always said that the nuclear fleet is in dire straits. If natural gas prices continue to stay cheap, right now they're not. So nuclear is actually doing surprisingly well this year, but that doesn't mean it's always gonna stay that way. There was a tax credit that would help shore them up that would complement the civil nuclear program that was in the infrastructure bill to help those plants stay afloat. And then the other big, big package, and we think it's really important for the longer run is clean hydrogen tax credits, carbon capture extension and enhancement of the carbon capture tax credits direct air capture gets a special bonus credit clean fuels gets a long-term quite substantial credit and all of these technologies are still like early stage you know they're commercially available but early stage right and so having a long runway of new tax credits available would re- is really critical to having those technologies have a pathway to scaling up and now all of that's off the table Uh, Not to mention all these other climate investments in ag, agriculture, and uh, electrification. There was a lot of other stuff on the table that would be important here. Previously, we found the maximum impact of the house package, which is not what we're talking about here. Remember, things got trimmed down as far as we can tell from the reporting, but that could get up to almost a a gigaton of total emission reductions relative to in 2030. Um, That's off an old baseline, so don't put that up against the percent numbers I just talked about. But still, like that's the scale, something really big. Like you know, in a world where we where the u s is like at least one point five gigatons away from the target on the low end today that that like this would have made a major contribution and and you know that just means that without any congressional action going forward, all the other potential areas for action are going to be that much more important to the u s doing anything to really get some points on the board.
0: Well, let's talk about other other areas for action, right so We've seen climate bills and initiatives fall apart in the United States Senate before. Uh, This one's definitely on the ropes. The last time this happened in 2009, 2010 with cap and trade, there was a natural fallback and that was moving to EPA regulation. After the debate around Waxman-Markey stalled out, the EPA drafted the, the Clean Power Plan, right? They wanted to use Clean Air Act authority to regulate the power sector and make that the signature climate policy of the United States. And this was I think at the time really important. That underlined the uh, president then president Obama's approach to the Paris Climate Agreement. It was it garnered corporate support, environmental support, labor support. And in this case that was decided uh, a couple weeks ago, West Virginia versus EPA, the Supreme Court shot down the plan. Now it had never come to fruition because it, it, it had been uh, previously stayed. But that decision has been sort of widely seen as significantly constraining EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases and so I think it's really important for us to think a lot and hear from Kyle how much of a fallback this regulatory approach now is but Kyle I also think it would be good for the benefit of our listeners many of whom come from abroad to get the sort of the brief but clear description of what the legal issues were at play and 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 how the Clean Air Act applies to greenhouse gases which is you know, is a long and, and and complicated story. Sure, I'll do my best. In the Clean Power Plan rule case that we're talking about here, what was at issue was a rule promulgated by the Environmental Protection Agency that would have set emission limits for existing power plants, fossil fuel-fired power plants. It was an exercise of EPA's authority under a particular part of the Clean Air Act, Section One Eleven. Uh, Section 111D, to be more specific. And Section 111 authorizes, even directs the EPA to set emission limits for classes of major polluters. And the emission limits and in setting the emission limits, EPA is supposed to first identify, quote, the best system of emission reduction, unquote, for those facilities. And that having identified that system, it's supposed to use that system as essentially the benchmark for calculating the emission limits. Now, in the past, EPA has frequently employed Section 111 for new facilities of various kinds. And most of the time when it was doing that, it identified as the best system of emission reduction, a system of pollution control measures that you could implement at individual facilities. And EPA determined at the time of the Clean Power Plan rule, and this is the Obama EPA, as you pointed out, Joseph, that that would not be a great approach for power plants because they would have to choose either between measures that wouldn't do very much at an individual plant or measures like carbon capture and sequestration, which could do a lot, but at the time were quite costly. And they uh, realized the benefit of a market-based approach and said, we'll take a different approach to interpreting this term system and come up with a system that essentially relies on the system that the power sector uses to shift generation from some power plants to other power plants. And we will you know, basically assume that high emitting plants can shift their generation to low or zero emitting plants, primarily through a cap and trade system or similar market-based approach. And so EPA chose this system and set emission limits based on what it determined would be feasible levels of shifting, particularly away from coal generation to natural gas and to renewables. Coal plants actually couldn't meet these emission limits at the plant. They would have to shift or buy allowances or take other steps. So the Trump EPA came in and immediately reversed this rule and said we don't have this kind of authority this is not a valid interpretation of this congressionally granted term this system of emission reduction all of this went to the courts and made its way to the supreme court eventually and the supreme court took took up this case interestingly as you pointed out the clean power plan rule by then had actually been more or less complied with that you know the emissions had been reduced uh, below the levels actually set forth in the clean power plan rule And by this time, things had, you know, the Biden administration had taken over and said, "Look, we don't intend to enforce the Clean Power Plan rule. We're going to take a different approach." We sort of see the writing on the wall here in some ways. But the Supreme Court nevertheless took up the case, felt it was not mooted in some way. And interestingly, as I said before, there was some theory that maybe the Supreme Court would simply find that EPA doesn't have any authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean Air Act and. The court might reverse prior decisions that held to the contrary, but the chief justice writing for the majority uh, actually said that EPA has authority to regulate under Section 111, regulate greenhouse gas emissions, and in fact, maybe is obligated to regulate uh, emissions for power plants, but did it in the wrong way. And the court, the majority applied a particularly skeptical mode of review here. And they said, look, in this case, this is an extraordinary case. Because what we see here is the EPA interpreting this little-used area of the Clean Air Act, that is Section 111D, and assuming it has very large new powers that it's never exercised before. And when it's doing that, we're going to look for something extra here. We're going to look for a very clear statement from Congress that they're authorized to do this. And we don't find that here. What we find is EPA doing something what I think would look to the court like industrial policy, you know, essentially saying, how much coal fired power can we have in the country? How much natural gas? And they're saying, this is not what Congress would have relied on you to do. And so even in a more deferential case, we would say, maybe this is a decent interpretation of the term system. You're doing something so vast here with such great consequences. We're, we're looking for a more clear statement of authority to do this, and we don't find it here. So this invalidated the Clean Power Plan rule, but the majority was careful to say, what we're invalidating here is only this generation shifting approach, this, this interpretation of this term, which seems to allow some scope for the EPA still to develop emission limits for power plants, as it's required to do actually under the court's interpretation, in the more conventional way it's done these sort of limits in the past, which is by looking at pollution control measures that can be done at the plant itself. There is some back and forth between the majority of the decision and the dissent, where the dissent sort of points out, hey, you know, there are conventional measures here, you know, which you consider conventional ways of of regulating facilities here, i.e. by setting a limit based on what can be done at facilities, that would have significant consequences that would be very costly, like carbon capture and sequestration or other. And, you know, you know, you're not really telling us majority whether that carries the day whether that would be a valid exercise of power and the majority is pretty careful to say yes we're not really going to tell you that <laughs> we're we're sort of limiting our decision to the validity of this generation shifting approach or not but there's some suggestion in the majority and a strong suggestion in a a concurring decision drafted by Gorsuch and joined by Justice Alito that suggests that a lot of sort of actions by agencies that are new and have significant consequences could be looked at more skeptically through this, quote, major questions doctrine. So what's left for EPA to work with here is what seems like their prior, more conventional uses of this authority, but still lingering questions about whether exercises these authorities that have really significant consequences could still attract a skeptical review by a court. So for instance, there's a, a a little footnote in the majority decision that people are parsing like crazy where the majority seems to say, well look if, you know, to the point by the dissent that there are certain types of pollution control measures that could lead to a lot of closures of coal-fired power plants. And this footnote sort of implies that, well, if that's an incidental effect of an otherwise sort of straightforward emission limit, well, that that would be different. So now people are going to be thinking, well, what's an incidental effect and what is an effect we all know will happen? And, you know, so it's going to be this is where they're, you know, they've sort of sprinkled a shadow of uncertainty over all these future uh, regulatory exercises. Well, not. preventing them altogether. And it speaks to one of the challenges, right? Because everything gets then very technologically specific, right? I understand a lot of coal plants are able to burn natural gas because they use natural gas as an ignition process or for ignition of of coal. And so like, what if that pipe got a little bit bigger and you started burning a lot of natural gas, is that a significant change? Is is there a, a qualitative line that the Supreme Court will get upset about? It seems like that's just a. It was left as a mystery for the reader. No, Joseph, that's another good example. There's sort of an offhand comment by you know suggesting, well, well, you know, in the majority decision, well, surely EPA could never make a coal plant become a gas plant, and so that's that raises the question just about this sort of fuel switching or or partial fuel use that you're describing, which is a sort of you know certainly a regular sort of emission control measure, but is that now somehow in the pale of this uh you know major consequence that the the court will look askance at hard to know hard to know it just leaves a lot of questions i mean thankfully we've got john with us so I, i'd like to ask him for a quick intervention right so it makes a lot of sense you think okay well epa might have to regulate with more intensity individual facilities but carbon capture and storage has gotten a lot of support over the last 10 years costs have fallen somewhat Uh, There's a big tax credit program in the United States that would support the 45Q program that would support carbon capture and storage activities. So, you know, from from an analysis standpoint, John, do you think that there's a lot of there there thinking about EPA writing rules that would require power plants, coal or natural gas to install and operate carbon capture equipment? And say you decided that you were going to, you know, use a social cost of carbon of $100. The National Petroleum Council says CCS is pretty economical in the $90 to $100 range. Like, is that a plausible route forward from an analyst point of view?
2: It's one of the only routes forward where I think you have a rule that does something. Let's put it that way. That doesn't completely answer your question. I think ultimately EPA will have to go through its its checklist of is this demonstrated, is it cost effective? Is it technically fe- you know, all all those magic words in section one eleven to determine that, they have looked at carbon capture in the past and have largely, and Kyle can correct me if I'm overstating this, they have largely found the answer is yes to most of it except for the cost point. Or what they found was there were things that were cheaper mm. than that that they could do, like switching to wind and solar. So now if those other options are off the table because of the court, then you kind of, and the list is shorter, well, then does that change their like relative assessment of the opportunities here in an important way? You know, I mean, carbon capture to me looks a hell of a lot like a sulfur scrubber for SO2 or an SCR, selective Catalytic Control Technology for NOx. You know, like, I mean, it's a thing you bolt onto the plant to control pollution, right? Like, and so if we're getting back to basics with what the Congress told EPA to do with the Clean Air Act, that carbon capture seems like a fairly attractive technology to, for EPA to look at. One point that I think is important for folks to understand around like what to look for in an in a EPA rule, which is people often think about power sector or CO2 emissions as a coal problem. That has mostly been where emission reductions have come from, is from reduction coal over time. Uh, if we are trying to get to net zero economy-wide by 2050 and decarbonizing electric power sooner than that we need to be tackling both new and existing natural gas this decade in some way. Our take is carbon capture is a relevant control technology for that subset of the fleet as well. I'll also note, and Kyle knows this better than me, but like there are fewer conventional pollutant regulatory pathways that can actually put pressure on existing gas plants. Mm -hmm. Therefore, 111D for CO2 becomes that much more important to that part of the equation. And that that doesn't necessarily mean 90% capture on every plant in the land by a certain date, which would be the most maybe draconian way to apply carbon capture in this context, but some sort of creative conceptual approach that maybe phases in carbon capture uh, at associated infrastructure for some amount of time or something like that on, on all emitting major plants is really one of the only ways that we see EPA having a meaningful power plant rule, given the Supreme Court. Yeah, if I if I may, Joseph, I think I think
0: John has really laid it out nicely. I mean, you know, the test here under Section one eleven D, which John was alluding to, the other parts of the test that the court didn't really have reason to get into is that this best system of emission reduction must be, quote, adequately demonstrated and can't be exorbitantly costly. So when you look at existing gas plants, I think John's right, that's just really a very important category here. The issue is it might be hard right now for carbon capture and sequestration or or hydrogen blending to totally meet that test. But there is case law from the past that seems to contemplate that EPA doesn't have to require or find all of this to be immediately available. It can say that within a sort of period of time, it could say by time period X, we expect you to have this, to meet an emission limit that reflects the use of these technologies, because we think that during that time period, this te- these technologies are going to come down in cost and be and be more widely available. And in fact, there's case law that says the EPA may utilize Section 111 for this sort of technology forcing purpose. So it can take into account its own regulatory action as a means to get there. So I think a question facing the EPA now, if it's serious about sort of constraining just a big runaway investment in infinite new natural gas plants, is, does it say, well, we're going to try to push this, we're going to try to say that by date, you know, 2030 or 40, whatever, that will be a limit that, that any existing plant at that time will have to meet. Uh, or does it say, let's see what we can do now and try to leave that rulemaking to a future EPA when it, you know, it can make that case a little bit more precisely. I think that, you know, or is there some sort of special rule that we could create that creates a sort of dynamic trigger that put, brings these into effect. I think this is likely what the agency is, is struggling with and honestly was struggling with even before the Supreme Court case, because I, I think that they knew there was not a judicial appetite for something like the Clean Power Plan rule. So now it's a matter of, of how can they do this sort of more controlled technology-based standard? What, what, is, what is
2: reasonable to implement at this point? So Kyle, one one question I've just seen floating around this is back to the major questions part of this. So given the news from last night about Senator Manchin saying climate's off the table, uh, and now you know I recognize he's now saying well maybe later it's back on, but right now it's not. You know, assuming that holds, then one could interpret this as Congress affirmatively choosing not to tackle climate change. Now I will note there's not a single regulatory action or direction to EPA for regulatory action in that bill. At the same time, people frame it as a climate bill because it is. It does reduce emissions. Does the affirmative decline to act by Congress signal that Congress did not want any and want the executive branch to act on an issue? Because some of the takes from the Supreme Court decision and even, you know, some of the footnotes or certain sidebars in there kind of get into this a little bit. And I'm just curious if we should be interpreting any of this in that lens or not. Yeah, I think that might be a little overbroad take
0: those those sort of takes because, you know, there's a discussion in the major questions in the um, West Virginia, the EPA case, it's very specific. It's it's can we infer that EPA, that Congress, when it had this term best system of emission reduction, was granting EPA the discretion to do a cap and trade program and in a whole series of arguments why that was not the case. Number three or four was, well, you know, Congress specifically considered cap and trade programs and rejected them. And I think that that was very specific to that particular set of arguments. And even the dissent said, you know, the court's not supposed to generally doesn't, as a matter of statutory interpretation, reason from congressional inaction as some sort of affirmative statement that we don't want you to do something. So I, I think the court would resist saying, you know, something so broad as because Congress didn't pass climate legislation, it doesn't want agencies to do climate. But I to be clear, though, I think the major questions doctrine is going to complicate much of the sort of all the government uh, uh, agenda of the Biden administration, whether it's the SEC rules or potential actions by FERC. Where there is not, as in the case with the EPA, actually a clear climate, you know, a a court affirmed climate policy mission, I think the major questions doctrine will be out there to complicate a lot of those other efforts, even with, you know, aside from congressional inaction. So that leaves me pondering what next? Sure, it's possible. Senator Manchin comes back to the table or. Senate Democrats bring him an offer he he can't refuse. I think it's important for us to touch on the the sort of two issues that I I think are really affecting Senator Manchin's decision-making here, and those are inflation and energy security. We're at a time of near historic or historic uh, inflationary pressure. And I've been personally underwhelmed by the argument that passing the Clean Energy Tax Credit bill will dramatically alter inflation one way or the other. I think over the long term, there's a strong argument it reduces consumer costs, but you know I I don't think it would make a difference between now and December. But um, you know I'm I'm interested in your combined thoughts on on that front, and you know how we can think about climate action, in particular that model of of tax credits at a time of of very high global energy prices. John, I know this is an area where you've done some
2: work. Yeah, I'll start. I mean, I get a couple things. One is I agree that we we have actually found that in the near term. The presence or absence of a large tax credit package really doesn't change consumer energy prices. Though, over time, as you start to diversify the electric generation fleet that much more, if you have EV tax credits in, you're now diversifying light duty fleet that much more, then yeah, you start to get a material amount of enhanced reductions in energy burden on households. And, you know, in the order of like a few hundred dollars per household. By the end of the decade, which is, you know, that, that matters, but it's not to your point, it's not it's not the end of this year. And that at the same time, it also does put downward pressure on fossil fuel prices counterintuitively because you are now reducing demand for those fuels and substituting them with clean energy. Right. So uh, in particular, we found that like the, the amount of gas you could free up in the electric power sector alone could be equal to the amount we're already exporting every year through liquefied natural gas, which is quite quite a large chunk. Um, and could put you know put downward pressure on delivered gas prices for everybody over time. So I think that's a key thing. I mean, a, a a different thing to think about, just tying this back to the regulatory decisions too, is like higher energy prices makes the the even the perceived notion that you will raise those prices even a little that much harder, right? And this has always been a place where EPA regulation costs is always part consumer costs, not not just the cost. EPA considers when setting a standard, but like the ultimate flow through down to like, you know, mom and pop and kitchen table stuff. It's always been a political factor in almost every rulemaking. Light-duty vehicles, you're just going to make cars more expensive, you know, like that's not cool. And it's like, yeah, but we're going to save all these people money on avoided gasoline expenses. Yeah, but you're making cars more expensive. That's not cool, right? uh, I remember with the mercury air toxic standards, which is not necessarily a climate rule, but like everybody said, well, the lights will go out and everyone's going to pay like so much more for electricity because of its rule, which, by the way, neither of those things are true. And so it just in a high price environment, it makes it harder to take action politically on a regulatory sense. Doesn't mean they should not act or that they won't act. I actually hope, you know, one you mentioned earlier, like the next thing after Western market was regulation. I'll just note there was a two year hiatus until Obama got reelected because they were worried about the political optics of climate action for executive uh, regulations and waited until he got safely reinstalled before they pursued those actions, right? I, I do not think if Biden wants to try and meet his climate targets, that he has that luxury here. The, the you know, time, you know, there's seven and a half years before 2030, so you gotta you got get moving. Well, and you know, you think
0: about the developments that we've had since, it's not the same world that we were in in the 2009 to 2012. And one thing that I've had in my mind is that the climate agenda, while we can't leave aside the power sector, has really started to focus on other emission sources, industrial sources, whether you call them hard to abate or must abate transportation. So Kyle, it'd be interesting to hear your closing thoughts on you know, can, we, can we infer anything from the recent decision about how EPA might approach these other source categories, if they're stationary, right? And therefore, under the same section of the Clean Air Act? Or does the major questions doctrine sort of create challenges even for EPA, let's let, set aside the, the sort of the FERC or Securities Exchange Commission parts? You know, that's interesting, Joseph. I, I actually think that it's very unlikely that the EPA, even in a, well, maybe in a two-term Biden administration, would even reach in industrial sources with these sort of emission limits. I think in some ways with these industrial sources, I think a lot of the action really is through sort of SEC transparency, the the initiative out of the White House to corral major companies, to get them to agree to purchase low carbon goods, and then the procurement by the government itself of those sort of industrial activity, of uh, industrial goods. So it seems like it's, I, I don't think there, I don't foresee an, much of an EPA regulatory role there. It seems to be this sort of constellation of other, even sort of non-regulatory policies. And And by the way, I think there's a sort of note there about the extent to which climate mitigation is just being internalized in a lot of companies, just absent government, in a sense, like a lot of companies are just looking past government policies at this point, and instituting these sort of commitments on their own. I mean, I think whether they will bear fruit and whether these sort of commitments are, are real and whether they could be tracked and whether, the, you know, I think are all good questions. But I think I'll be interested to see just how durable these sort of commitments are in the absence of certain and reliable governmental policy, because I think that's sort of the world we're moving into. We are coming up to the end of our time. I really appreciate that both of you joined us today. I learned something from each of you. It's been a a strange couple of weeks for those of us who watch climate policy closely. I think we all have a lot of thinking to do about what are plausible next steps.
1: Thanks to Kyle, John, and Joseph for joining us for this timely discussion. There are links in our episode description for some recent analysis, both from their guests and from CSIS. As always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. Follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy for updates, and thanks for listening.